the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. January 14th, 2022. I closed the show Wednesday reading from Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, and wanted to further elaborate on the point I was making. It regards yet another creeping encroachment on our liberties. I say creeping advisedly because we tend to dismiss too many of our warnings as so many calls from Cassandra. It's a mistake when it comes to those with good track records or right reason. You've heard me a little on this before. The inversions we are now becoming accustomed, inured, and numbed to. And this involves the most serious and important of civil liberties, beginning at the beginning, the First Amendment. The modern fashion is to invert speech and action, a danger foreshadowed by Aristotle, the Bible, Thomas Jefferson, and a long line of other authorities. As I had cause to mention the other day, as Jefferson put it, quote, the error seems not sufficiently eradicated that the operations of the mind as well as the acts of the body are subjects to the coercion of the laws. The legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others, but it does mean no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, close quote. But those lessons, constraining as they are to authoritarians and tyrants, could not be absorbed, much less tolerated by them. To justify violence from the left, you get such empty platitudes that too many take seriously. For example, as silence equals violence. And when silence is broken by the non-left, words or speech equals violence or can. You get this in all manner of use. From who said protests had to be peaceful to the invocation to march peacefully and patriotically being totemic of insurrection, even impeachable, saying about rioters, people will do what people will do or naming Supreme Court justices and saying we are coming for you and you won't know what hit you. That's all just fine in the modern dispensation. This has been going on for some time. One story a few years back from the College Fix finds a majority of college students believe words can be considered acts of violence. A few examples of many that could fill the whole hour. Southern California students protested a mad scientist-themed party at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, claiming it represented, quote, violence against disabled people, close quote. A speech by conservative feminist Christina Hoff Summers at Oberlin College was equated to violence that demanded an alternative safe space. When transgender actress and activist Laverne Cox gave a speech at George Washington University, she told the crowd, quote, I've come to understand after all these years of experience that calling a transgender woman a man is an act of violence, close quote. The audience, of course, went wild with applause. Let me pause to note here saying men give birth is perfectly fine at institutions of higher education. To say that they can't is deemed an act of violence. One respected professor of psychology put it this way just a few years ago, quote, 
Bullies and torments ought to be prevented because from the perspective of our brain cells, it is literally a form of violence, close quote. Anyone see a danger here? Obviously, we do because it comes to us this way, thanks to the research of Jeff Jacoby. Al Gore, as vice president, could say this without critique, quote, Republicans want to create as much discord and hatefulness as they possibly can and follow a scorched earth political strategy, burn down the house in hopes that you'll inherit the ashes, close quote. Jim Miklaszewski, an NBC senior correspondent, did a story on then U.S. Senator Jesse Helms using the epithets Prince of Darkness, Rabbit Attack Dog, Bigot, Sexist and Homophobe. No retractions. Sunni Khalid of NPR declared that Newt Gingrich was seeking, quote, a more scientific, a more civil way of lynching people, close quote. Harlem's then left wing congressman Democrat Charlie Rango blasted Republicans tax cut pledge, not by call- calling it bad economics, but by calling it racism. Quote, it's not the S word or the N word anymore. He actually used those full words. Now, he said, quote, they say, let's cut taxes. Close quote. There were, of course, all manner of justifications for the riots of 2020 to make sure you didn't see them as acts of violence, operations to be criminalized. Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know that name. She's the founder of the 1619 Project, trying to change our calendars and history, said this a year ago, quote, destroying property which can be replaced is not violence. To use the same language to describe those two things is not moral, close quote. When Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed in the New York Times suggesting the deployment of the Insurrection Act to quell those riots of 2020, he was pilloried by the editors of the New York Times. Here's a story, quote, Times staffers flooded Twitter on Wednesday to protest the op-ed of Tom Cotton's tweeting, running this puts black New York Times staff lives in danger and running this op-ed puts black people, including blacks, New York Times staff in danger, close quote. And when parents spoke up against critical race theory foisted on their students, the libel and label of domestic terrorism was aimed at them. Conservative speech equates terrorism. None of this is new to Marxists. In the USSR, it was literally a crime punishable by six months imprisonment not to report someone opposed to communism. There, wrong thinking became a psychological condition. They called it psychopathological mechanisms. And you were put in an asylum in what outside observers would later call the abuse of psychiatry. I believe we teeter awfully close to this when you have professors of psychology and psychiatry today diagnosing political leaders from afar, having never met them, much less analyzing them clinically, analyzing them and diagnosing them as, quote, unfit close quote, because of their ideas. Four years ago, from Harvard and Yale professors, you actually got a book, not a magazine as old as Goldwater got, a book titled, quote, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, close quote. At ASU, being white in a multicultural center was violence to two black activist students who took it upon themselves to expel the white students. You can, in any, tyranny, in any tyranny, criminalize thought just as you can criminalize race. And whether it is the work of communists or Nazis, it should have no place here. But the truth is it has a very safe space here.
Keep in mind, being white and conservative makes you, quote, a white nationalist, which can be easily conflated with being a domestic terrorist, part of a criminal organization. Two days ago in the Arizona Republic, columnist E.J. Montini wrote that what in better days and better understandings of the law would have subjected him and his employer to a defamation suit. The title of his piece, quote, Ducey could slow Arizona's slide into white nationalism, close quote. I read, I read it eagerly to see how. He writes that Governor Ducey's state of the state address was incommensurable to his party because, quote, current Republicans whose interests and loyalties have shifted from public policy to a single person, Donald Trump, with that has come a slide within the Republican Party to something tilting toward the authoritarian, the autocratic, with a bitter aftertaste of white nationalism. He continues, still quoting, just look at the so-called Republicans running for office or in positions of authority within the Arizona GOP. From Oath Keeper types like Senator Wendy Rogers and Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham to members of Congress like Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar, to gubernatorial candidates like Carrie Lake, to GOP chair Kelly Ward, and that's just a few, close quote. If there were a defamation suit, there's your plaintiff's class. They ought to sue. I'll happily file amicus curiae on their behalf. If I were any one of these people, I would sue tomorrow. There is no evidence in Montini's column or anywhere else that any of these people are white nationalists. And, of course, it's awfully handy to cherry pick. There are 90 members of our state's legislature, both host majorities of Republicans, and he names two who he thinks represent the entire warp and woof of the party and gives no proof anyway whatsoever that they are white nationalists aside from the color of their skin, except that they think wrongly, according to him. Maybe he's a white nationalist because he thinks wrongly, according to me. Of course, that's absurd. But, you know, when you think wrongly to the left, that is against the state, or the leftist sensibility, you are to be considered a terrorist threat per the FBI, which is a crime. If you want to know where this comes from, it's all classic Marxism. And what I was getting at in ending the show on Wednesday, its technical term is praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, the marriage of thought to action, or better said, the conflation of thought and action. The Dictionary of Marxist Thought defines it this way, quote, the free, universal, creative and self-creative activity through which man creates, makes, produces and changes, shapes his historical human world and himself, an activity specific to man through which he is basically differentiated from all other beings. In this sense, man can be regarded as a being of praxis. Praxis is the central concept of Marxism and Marxism as the philosophy or thinking of praxis, close quote. Now you can understand why Jean-Paul Sartre and Franz Fanon and his Wretched of the Earth could justify violence, what we used to call terrorism, against anyone who wasn't a revolutionary. Now you can understand why Marx said that until he came on the scene, the purpose of philosophy was to understand the past, whereas now it is to change it. And this is why Whitaker Chambers, as steeped in Marxism as anyone for a while, could write this of communism, quote, the vision is a challenge and implies a threat. It challenges man to prove by his acts that he is the masterwork of the creation by making thought and act one. 
It challenges him to prove it by using the force of his rational mind to end the bloody meaninglessness of man's history by giving it purpose and a plan. It challenges him to prove it by reducing the meaningless chaos of nature by imposing on it his rational will to order abundance and security, close quote. Beware this threat. It's here. It's growing. And if not arrested soon, will soon constitute chapter 201 in my book, How Come I Don't Recognize This Country Anymore? I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Hello, Rick. Hello there, my friend Seth. How are you, man? It is. I'm doing great, and it is always a joy to talk to you and to listen to you teach, brother. Oh, thanks. Uh, the monologue today was another outstanding one. Thank you. And amazingly enough, last night I was watching an old episode of Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone. Yes, sir. Have you ever watched any of those? I've watched like two of them, okay. and uh, they freaked me out. I don't do yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't do well with uh, scary movies, and well, and 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 I don't do well with sci-fi. But I had to watch, too, because everyone I knew at the time when they were replaying in high school and stuff was just, you know, fanatical well, about them. Yeah, I, I admit, some of them are scary and kind of freaky and and all of that. But this one was amazingly yeah. a prediction of your monologue today. Oh, it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. And, and here's the thing. I have noticed that a number of the episodes... Uh, that Rod Serling produced uh, touched on the ideas of uh, communism and the the bad news about uh, the state, and that's what this one was about. It uh, it had Burgess Meredith uh-huh. as a librarian in a futuristic uh, uh, time, and the state has determined that as a librarian, he has become obsolete because, after all, he deals yeah, with words, yeah, yeah. and words convey truth. Yeah, yeah, and we can't have that kind of thing going on. Interesting. So they were he, reading. They were the the writers, script writers, were reading Orwell. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and and so he was condemned to die. And uh, he pulls this kind of uh, 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 interesting uh, uh, situation where he gets to choose his uh, executor, and he chooses the judge. And so the judge comes to his apartment, and it's it's kind of an interesting little story. But the whole thing deals with this idea of what happens when the state oversteps its Bounds. Yeah. And I, it's like uh, you're it was like, wow, this, this was his monologue. Huh, yeah, <laughs> that is so interesting to know that um, really I might want to go find that episode and watch it this weekend. I would recommend okay. it. I would recommend it because it, it's so there were several statements and 
things in it that touched on so many of the things that we're dealing with currently and that you've been talking about and that we're we're currently uh, talking about it's like wow this is amazing you know there, there were there were really... kind of two hollywoods going on around then when did uh-huh. that when did that run like 59 to 69 or somewhere around 60 to 60 mostly in the 60s i think yeah and early 60s yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so there were two things going on in hollywood at that time which makes all of this so fascinating to me one was up until the 50s, Hollywood was really very conservative in a way that you wouldn't know politically, just morally, socially kind of conservative. But there was yeah. this very obvious undercurrent, particularly amongst the writers, uh, of, of of being socialists and communists. And, of course, you know, that's where we got the notion of the blacklist and all that sort of right. thing. Right. And it moved a lot of Hollywood in the aftermath of the of, of of what was then known as the Red Scare, it moved a lot of Hollywood in the '60s uh-huh. to be fairly conservative. And you yeah. th- and 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 one of my favorite pictures is a uh, is a nineteen uh, a nineteen seventy two fundraising picture uh, for Ronald Reagan's six six eight nine sorry nineteen seventy nineteen seventy picture. Uh-huh. Of a fundraiser for Governor Reagan's reelection, and it had Jimmy Stewart, Frank yeah. Sinatra, John Wayne. You can get it. You can see yeah. it. And Dean Martin. And you wonder, you know, uh, you could say seventy two is a long time ago. You could say it feels like yesterday in some respects. Yeah, that's how quickly it's changed. Yeah, that's yeah. how it's quickly a, it's changed. But it's even even some of the liberal or people who might call themselves liberals were afraid of tyranny in those days. Kurt Vonnegut's right. books, he was no conservative. He would be known as, you know, a, kind of a liberal hero. Yeah. But his works were anti-authoritarian too. See, yeah. what happened was, I kind of tried to do this. I may have done it too quickly in the monologue. But what happened was that there were two forms of tyranny going on. And what the left in Hollywood was opposing, of course, was fascism. And what a lot of anti-communists thought at the time was they were opposing tyranny and so uh, or authoritarianism or any big state. Yeah. Uh, but fascism and communism were obviously the two fears of everyone in the post-World War II of America. Yeah. And when they were speaking prose on the left, the right was thinking – because it was anti-authoritarian, the right was thinking it's anti-communist. So I want to watch that episode with that eye, with that I, frame of mind. Yeah, I really recommend that, okay. and I'd like to get your uh, take on it, your input. Oh, on I'll it. do it. I'll do it. Yeah. It'll be easy for me to find. I'll put in Burgess have, Meredith have, Twilight Zone. Have a great, have a great uh, weekend, brother. Well, thank you. How long are those episodes? Are they a half oh, hour? They're half hour. Yeah, yeah. it's and, amazing and how much you know, they can less, do in a half hour. Yeah, huh? less than a half an hour because of commercials and whatnot. Yeah, and Burgess Meredith actually did several Twilight Zone. Uh, episode. Okay. So you might have to hunt for it a little bit, right. but it's the one where he is actually the library. I'll find it. Yeah. I'll find it. Rick, yeah, thank think, you for the I tip. I think you'll find it interesting. Thank you, sir. I look forward to the rest of the show, brother. All right, brother. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Stevens in Phoenix. Hello, Stephen. 
Yeah, hi, uh, Seth. I spoke to you last week briefly about, you know, the media and stuff like that, but I wanted to follow up on the last caller. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I, too, am a Twilight Zone fan. Okay. And, uh, I happen to watch quite a few episodes, and it's amazing to me how much you can relate the writing of those days back to today, as well as the struggles that they went with, you know, yesteryear, mm-hmm. for that matter. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they were writing on things that, of course, the tyranny and the fascism that they had faced just with the exit of World War II and the fight there. And it's it's almost prophetic with those episodes, um, you know, in the 60s that they have that, that we can almost relate to nowadays. I, uh, you know, it, it was a really serious concern uh, in the 50s and 60s censorship in Hollywood. And I and as I recall reading somewhere, I really I'm the last guy to know to ask much about the Twilight Zone or Rod Serling. I just I really it's just a chasm in my cultural knowledge. I don't know a lot about it. I'm familiar with the concept. I've seen a couple episodes. But as I seem to recall somewhere, Rod Serling uh, got into as I seem to recall, got into a lot of fights or a lot of arguments with uh, the Hollywood producers for them wanting to censor some of his stuff that touched on things of uh, the semi-political or social nature. Um, and, yeah. and, and I don't know which direction, but I do know that Hollywood used to be the first group to stand up to censorship and shout against what they called McCarthyism um, and blacklisting. Right. And it's what's fascinating is how how that worm has turned, if you will. Um, they are uh-huh. nowhere to be found in the fight against censorship today. Nowhere to be found except on the side of supporting it when they are found. No, agreed. And the products that Hollywood produces nowadays don't touch on the ones that they did back then with regard to, of course, you know, the Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, and that television. Now it seems, you know, it's kind of shifted in a less, Mm, sort of respect to drawing attention to censorship and things like that. So yeah, I don't watch I, I, much I, television I uh, to know how bad it oh, is. Right? Do I. Yeah, I, I'm guessing most of it is pretty bad. Um, I don't watch much anymore. Uh, I used to be. No, and, yeah, I used to. I, I just don't anymore. No, no, of course. And, and likewise. And that's why I could relate to the last caller was because, you know, um, the, the older television seemed to touch on subjects that were pretty real for the past and the time, and now it's all fantasy kind of thing, you know? And, I mean, how many times are we going to do King Kong, for crying out loud? <laughs> well, a so, lot of it does seem, uh, a lot of it does seem what Hollywood produces is just a remake of what's already been done. And when they're not remake, yeah. and if they're not just remaking it to bring it up to speed with modern technology, they're remaking it. Uh, to embrace uh, the new social mores, you know, with the gay, uh, the oh. gay characters in Superman, the changing of Superman's motto, uh, not truth, oh, yeah. justice sure. in the American way anymore, truth, justice in a better future, right? Right, right. No, of course, of course. And I and I see that, too. But no, I just wanted to compliment the last caller and uh, just offer my two cents, you know, make it a brief call. But uh, like what you're doing, Seth, thank you so much. Thank and, you um, very much. I will. I will talk to you soon, I'm sure. I, I hope so, Stephen. I really do. I love hearing from the audience. Uh, and I'll give the number out again, 
0960. Oh, this looks interesting. Happy Friday, Seth, writes Joe, a listener. Enjoying the show this afternoon. I know you're an Aloha from Hawaii fan. That concert was held 49 years ago today. That's Elvis, Aloha from Hawaii. By the way, he went on stage at 12.30 a.m. local time just after midnight to accommodate prime time in the Far East. That is a fun show. Uh, it is from that concert that we play Suspicious Minds because that's the upbeat tempo Elvis version that I like better than the recording, the recorded version. I believe it was the first worldwide broadcast concert, uh, uh, Aloha from Hawaii. And I also believe I read somewhere that the first person he gives a Hawaiian lay to from the stage into the audience is Jack Lord's wife. People remember Jack Lord. What a nice piece of trivia, Joe. Thank you for that. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. I don't have a television. Right. So don't watch uh, anything, really. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. On our culture segment here, I wanted to uh, bring a guest. First time on this show has a brand spanking new book out. Not her first, but just came out. And for a lot of the women out in the audience who are leading Bible studies, involved in Bible studies, thinking about ways to uh, change, improve, uh, or add to their Bible studies— this book by my friend Kimberly Herman, just out, Women of the Bible, a 12-week Bible study for Christian women. Uh, Kimberly, welcome to the show, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much, Seth, and thank you for having me on your show. Of course. I have known your family a long time. I am so delighted to see this. First-time question uh, for you. I do it with every first-time guest. Tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, how you grew up and came to be doing what you're doing. All right. Well, I didn't grow up to be an author, although that was always a dream of mine. Okay. <laughs> I'm actually a Christian counselor, and um, I've been doing that for, gosh, almost 18 years. I grew up in Iowa, but lived most of my life here in Phoenix. And uh, yeah, I have my um, own little shingle, and I work here in the Phoenix area. Thank you for uh, thank you for that. What uh, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, I'll give the title once more: Women of the Bible, a twelve week Bible study for Christian women. What inspired you as a as a counselor, a licensed counselor, to write a book uh, uh, for women specifically? And 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 how did you select the women that you highlight in your book? Well, that's a great question. I honestly wish I came up with this idea on my own. Um, but I didn't. I was contacted out of the blue by a traditional publisher who found my website and decided to ask me to write this book. And I was not, um, you know, I was co totally out of the blue. So prayed about it and felt like this was the right move. And uh, that's honestly how it came about. When you did undertake writing it, did you have the concept of how you were going to do it? What's interesting, the reason I ask is if anyone's listening um, and thinking about this, you're not inundated with a lot of women from the Bible. What you have done is you have taken one woman uh, and, and given a full week's study to each of them, right? That's what you've done. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering how how you chose the ones that you chose. Was that a hard part of it? It, it actually, it kind of was, because I had to have enough material to cover a week's worth of each of these women. 
And as you know, the Bible is, is much more focused on, on men. So to find these women was a little challenging. But I tell you, it's been absolutely amazing diving into each of their lives. This is a book that uh, obviously is meant to help people and change their lives. In your research and writing, did it change yours? And if so, how? Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't sure what to expect, quite honestly. But in my research for each of these women, I found that I, I either identified with some of them and could learn from a few of them. Uh, I learned from all of them, actually. But, um, you know, the two there's two people that stand out to me the most as far as um, the ones that I just, their story was just really inspiring to sure, me. Sure. So the first one is Mary, the mother of Jesus. When you study her, it's the scripture is filled with um, describing her as when she hears amazing news, she ponders it in her heart. If it were me, Seth, if somebody, if an angel came and told me this amazing news about this baby I was carrying, I'm not sure I would be as humble as Mary. I would be wanting to tell everybody what happened to me. And she didn't. She really just was humble and kept it to herself. And that really inspired me to recognize, you know, not everybody has to know all of my business, even if it's really exciting news. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I love that about Mary. Mary. And the, yeah, yeah, that's one. Give me, you said two. Oh, yeah, I was just going to prompt you. Yeah. Do, yeah. What was the other one? Who was the other one? So Deborah. So Deborah's uh -huh. from the Old Testament, uh -huh. and she was the only prophet and judge in Israel listed in the Bible. And she was a great leader. Now, at the time, the Israelites were going to war, and there was a man named Barak who was supposed to lead the Israelites in this war. He did not want to go. He was dragging his feet, and Deborah kept on encouraging him. This was his role, and he had to fulfill it. Well, he finally did, and there's, there's a whole story there. But my point is, is that Deborah was a great leader, but she recognized what was her role and what was Barak's. She could have easily stepped in his role and said, Okay, forget you, Barack. I could, I'm just going to do this myself. She didn't do that. She really encouraged him to take on that role. And I love that as a reminder that even if we're natural born leaders, it's not up to us to do everything for everybody. Sometimes we have to really walk along some, some people and encourage them to do what they're meant to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. Build each other up, you betcha. Yeah. We're talking absolutely. to Kimberly Herman, her book just out, Women of the Bible, a 12-week Bible study for Christian women. You go into this early on in the book, but for obviously uh, the purpose of anyone listening who's inclined to want to buy it or use it in their Bible study, how do you recommend they do so? How do you use this book? Well, so it can be an individual study or it can be a group study. Mm -hmm. So in the back is a page of, of a bunch of different questions that can be used in a group setting. And what I love about this book is it's so easy. Each chapter is a, less than a page, mm -hmm. and it's easy to read. And what's different about this book, uh, r rather than just a Bible study, is you're really learning not just about the women, but how to apply their lives to your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it makes it easy. 
tell me about um, one thing before I have to move on to the to the next segment. But tell me about um, the, the 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 study you have on Sarah's anger. Everyone knows about Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. Tell me tell me what you draw from Sarah's anger. I'm always fascinated by this story. Yeah. So Sarah, just was, as my own personal um, thing, I've just always found the story fascinating. Anyway, I'd love yeah. to hear your take on it. So she got really angry at Ishmael, um, Abraham's son with Hagar, mm-hmm. and she got so mad. I think he was probably around 12 at the time that he he did something to Isaac. She got mad. She kicked him out, told Abraham to kick him out, and so she lost her mind and made them leave, like, forever. And um, what I love about that story is it is not a beautiful moment that she did. Um, she was over, you know, she's protective of her son and who knows what was going on, a lot of emotions in her. But what's beautiful about this story is that God intervened. He rescued Hagar and Ishmael and he blessed them with a, with, he blessed Ishmael with a huge nation of his own. But he, God intervened in that. So he didn't go back to Sarah and shame her or, you know, have a, fury of anger against her, he understood the situation and he intervened to help um, help through the the ramifications of that anger, which would, applies to all of us. You like, bet. we all make really bad decisions yeah. at times, right? <laughs> all of us. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and it's just, this is so relieving. It's like, oh, okay, Sarah's human. We can give ourselves grace in this. You know, we all make mistakes and the Lord knows that about us. He knows that. And he can intervene in that. Kimberly Herman, Women of the Bible, a 12-week Bible study for Christian women available at Amazon or anywhere else online that you do your shopping or any great bookstore. Women of the Bible by Kimberly Herman. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Seth. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. A lot of political news uh, going on, and I mentioned yesterday this great survey put out by uh, our uh, friend uh, George Kaloff from the Resolute Group on Arizona voters and their concerns, particularly when it comes to social issues, and it's uh, quite enlightening. He's going to join us to talk politics um, in just a few moments, and uh, feel free to give us a call if you have a question about Arizona politics uh, or even the national scene. Uh, I find him to be just uh, just about the best political analyst I know, uh, and we're fortunate to have him here. I was I, every Friday I read um, Peggy Noonan's Wall Street Journal column, and I and I I do it for a couple of reasons. One one is I used to really 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 like her. <laughs> I used to very much like her. Um, the second is I'm looking to see. If uh, if she's going to uh, ever eat her words or backtrack on her antipathy and opposition uh, to the party that gave her her career uh, and, and, and to what she wrote about Republicans over the last four years, she has a column in hers uh, in, in her piece today, her column today, uh, Biden's Georgia speech is a break point. The subtitle is he thought he was merely appealing to his base. He might have united the rest of the country against him. And she goes through what probably a lot of you have seen 
other uh, other analysts go through with Georgia's uh, with Joe Biden's Georgia speech about voting rights, comparing Republicans to Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis, et cetera, et cetera. And though she is a good writer, regardless of whether you agree with her or not, she is a good writer. Um, you, you, you sometimes have to think that there is a um, a uh, a smart, smart, stupid going on with some of these very self-selecting opinion makers or thought leaders, as the phrase used to be. I've always hated that that phrase, but that you'll you'll fami- you're familiar with it, so I'll use it. Thought leader. And and why do I say smart, smart, stupid? Okay, smart writer. Um, good analyst, uh, when, 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 when she writes something insightful that no one else has thought of, but stupid. I mean, how much light did you need on Joe Biden's career or his candidacy when you are steeped in the Republican party in the first place? How much light did you need to have shined to show you that his presidency would be a disaster so that you write a column like you have to write today. You wouldn't vote for Trump. You told your readers not to vote for Trump. Okay, are you happier now? No, of course not. And you'll say, well, a lot of us aren't happier now. Well, you didn't have to get us to this point. You could have seen what a lot of us were saying and a lot of us saw. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com